Well, maybe you've had a moment or two in your life when the thing that you thought that you needed actually revealed a greater need in your life. Right? I feel like this happens to me every single time I go to the DMV, for crying out loud. I need to renew my car tag, so I show up. I think I've got the right papers. I wait in line for an hour. And then when I get to the counter, they tell me, oh, well, sir, first, you've got to actually have your car assessed. And then you need to pay your property taxes in order for you to be able to do this. Oh, well, thank you so much. I've spent my whole afternoon trying to be here to do this. And now I'll waste my entire day and do the same tomorrow. Right? I realized that the thing that I needed revealed a lot bigger need that I had. Right, you can probably think of examples from your own life. You start cleaning the floors in your house, and all of a sudden you look at your baseboards, and you're like, man, our house needs a deep clean. Things are looking bad. You go to the doctor thinking that you need a routine checkup to Joseph Kuhn, right? And during that checkup, your blood work reveals that you need a high-powered medication because you're at risk of stroke due to high blood pressure. What we thought we needed revealed a greater need. In our sermon passage today, Jesus sets the record straight about our needs. He sets the record straight about our needs. We may look to him to give us what we think that we need, but in doing so, Jesus is actually exposing, he is revealing what we need most. But the surprising thing is that no one else can provide it but him which is what we're going to see in our text. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. If you need a Bible, uh, no worries. There are Bibles in the back. There are some black Bibles there on that little desk as you walk in the auditorium. Feel free to grab those. That's our gift to you. Feel free to take one with you. If you don't have a Bible, you can have it. And so they're in the back. Uh, We're going to be in Mark, chapter 2. Since we began this sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, Mark has focused our attention on Jesus' authority. Last week we looked at Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 45, and we learned that Jesus' authority is unrivaled, both in word and in deed. Jesus taught with such authority that people were astonished by it because it didn't teach them, he didn't teach them like one of the religious leaders of their day. He didn't teach them like all the other scribes who just recited their own rabbinic tradition. Demonic spirits, well, they don't stand a chance against his authority and power. In fact, as we saw in verse 24 of chapter 1, a demonic spirit affirms that authority by saying, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Not only that, sickness and death, they don't stand a chance against Jesus' authority. Left and right, people are bringing the sick to Jesus, and Jesus is just healing everybody of their diseases. We saw the climax of all of this with Jesus' healing of the leper in chapter 1, verses 39 to 45. Normally, leprosy was contagious, right? Because that person was unclean. If they were to touch anybody else or come in contact with anybody else, they would become unclean. But what do we see about Jesus? Though the leper's leprosy is contagious, Jesus' holiness is contagious. He touches the leper. And says, be made clean. And the leper is made clean. And Jesus is not defiled. His holiness is contagious. And so with all of this evidence of Jesus' authority came a massive following 
such as we see in verse 45, right, where people are just crowding out. There's no, there's no time, there's no ability to be able to enter into a town openly. And so where does Jesus hang out at? But out in the wilderness, out in the deserted places, the isolated places, away from all the hustle and bustle of people. But it didn't matter because his popularity was spreading like wildfire and people kept coming to him. So far in Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus' authority respected by people. But that pattern begins to change from one of respect to one of rejection, beginning with our passage. In this next section of Mark's gospel, we see Jesus' authority actually challenged and beginning to be challenged in the next couple of passages by the religious leaders of the day. And this opposition escalates to the point that we see in chapter 3, verse 6, that those religious leaders are no longer just questioning Jesus, but now they're actually wanting to kill Jesus. And yet, among these challenges to his authority, Jesus just continues to peel back the curtain on his very nature, the very nature of his identity, the very nature of his ministry. And from right here, the stakes only get higher for Jesus in this gospel. So listen and follow along as I read Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. When he entered Capernaum, again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the man, or they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The main idea of this text is super simple. It's super simple. Only the Son of Man has the authority to forgive your sins. That's the point of the text. Very simple main idea. Only the Son of Man has the authority to forgive your sins. And we're going to see that main idea as we follow our two points from the text. And point number one, we're going to see our deepest need. We're going to see our deepest need in verses one to five. And point number one, 
And then in point number two, we're going to see that Jesus provides for our deepest need. And so point number two is Jesus provides, verses 6 to 12. So we have our deepest need, point number two, Jesus provides, in verses 6 to 12. Let's look at our first point right there in verses 1 to 5, our deepest need. Mark tells us in verse 1 that after some days, Jesus returned to Capernaum and it was reported that he was at home. Right, So he's the talk of the town. Word is spreading about Jesus. And we've seen his popularity growing so much that at this early stage in his Galilean ministry, right, that he was out in deserted places, but people just kept coming to him. They were flocking to him to hear from him and to be healed by him. But word spreads that he's home. Now, normally when we think about home, we think of it as a place of rest, right? That's I finally get away from work to go home to where I can rest. We're on vacation. Oh, it's been wonderful. But by the end of the week, I'm like, I'm ready to get home. Right? It's a place of retreat from the pressures of our jobs. And when Jesus gets home, his ministry goes with him. So a crowd forms in his house such that people are crammed in the doorway. Now, we're not told explicitly whose house this is. I think personally it's probably Peter's house, right? The one that was already referred to back up in in verse 29 of chapter 1. Could be Jesus' own home. I think it's probably Peter's, though. We're just not told explicitly whose house it is. But it's possible that Jesus had his home base of operations in Jesus and Andrew's home, right? A home that was familiar with the crowds, as we can see in, in verse 33 of chapter 1, where the whole town had assembled already at one point, and yet are assembling again. Either way, this home is packed. Mark tells us in verse 2 that Jesus was speaking the word to this packed crowd. Again, we see the priority, the power of Jesus' word in this book. When Jesus speaks his word, he's speaking about the nearness of God's kingdom. He's speaking about the necessity and the need to repent of your sins and to believe in the good news. We saw that back in chapter 1, verse 15. We also see the priority of his word for his ministry in chapter 1, verse 38. We see that same priority right there. This is why I have come. He wants to go about preaching and teaching the good news. Amidst all of the healing, all of the miracles that are being performed, Mark does not want us to miss the priority and the power of Jesus' word for his ministry. It's his word that has the power to be able to transform lives. If we see the miracles, but we miss the message, then we don't truly see the miracles. That's what each of these miracles, all of these healings, are actually proving to us. If we miss the message, we actually miss the miracle itself. This is one of the reasons why Mark never refers to Jesus as an exorcist or as a miracle worker in this gospel. Instead, 12 times in this gospel, he mentions Jesus is a teacher. Now, obviously, we know that Jesus is more than just a teacher. We're going to see that in our text. 12 times, though, he mentions that Jesus is a teacher, not once an exorcist or a miracle worker. Preaching, teaching, speaking were all central to Jesus' ministry. 
If Jesus' ministry is centered on miracles, then everyone would come to Jesus for themselves. I'm coming to you to give me what I think I need. I need to be healed. That's what I need. And so I'm coming to you to get something for myself. I'm not actually coming to you for you. By his word, Jesus doesn't simply just give people what they want. He actually provides what they need most, which is what we see with the paralytic and his friends and everyone else in that house. But as the house is filled with a sold-out crowd hanging on Jesus' every single word, we meet four men carrying a paralytic on his bed. But because of the crowd, they're not able to reach Jesus. And so they, so they show remarkable resilience and resourcefulness to try to get this paralytic to Jesus, right? So what are they going to do? They're trying to cram through the door. They're not going to be able to get him through the door. The house is absolutely crowded. Oh, you know what? Let's take the external staircase up to the roof, right? That makes a lot of sense. Let's go that route. Now, roofs in Israel at that time, they were flat, right? They had a wooden cross beam, and that, above that crossbeam was a mixture of mud and thatch that formed the roof. That was where people went to get relieved of the humidity inside the house. And so they would go up to the roof to get some fresh air. It's much like what we think about with a deck today, right? You can climb up there by an outside staircase and get some fresh air. You can sleep on it at night if you need to. But these men aren't looking to get fresh air. They're looking to get to Jesus. And what better way to get to Jesus than to just dig through a roof? No need just asking everybody politely, excuse me, uh, excuse me, to try to work your way through. You might as well just go up to the roof and dig through it. And Mark says in verse 4 that they literally unroofed the roof. Right? They raised the roof, if you will. They unroofed the roof. Right? You can imagine being inside this house listening to Jesus, just utterly amazed at his teaching. And all of a sudden, you look up and dirt is just dropping from the ceiling onto your head. Babies crying during a sermon are far less distracting than actually someone trying to come through a roof, right? The ultimate drop-in visitor, as a friend once put it, trying to come through a roof to hear you preach, to hear you teach, to actually be at your very feet. Right, you can imagine this being in that room. Imagine if you were the owner of the house. You and I both know we would start flipping out if people took off our roof to get to us. We're thinking about our insurance claim. Oh my word, how much is this going to cost me? What's my deductible? That's exactly what we're thinking. You know that passage about showing hospitality without grumbling Yes, every single one of us would be guilty of that sin. We would be guilty. But for these men, it didn't matter what others were thinking. They were determined to hear what Jesus has to say. But the first thing that Mark mentions is not what Jesus says, but what Jesus sees. The crowd sees a bunch of crazy men trying to unroof a roof. But what does it say in verse 5 that Jesus sees? Verse 5. 
seeing their faith. The first thing is not what Jesus says, but what he sees. And by their faith, I think he's referring to the faith of each of these men, not just the paralytic, not just the four men. I think he's referring to all of them collectively. But how does one see faith? Right? Faith is something that happens internally. Right? It's invisible. Right? It happens at the heart level. Well, as we learned over the past couple of weeks, faith is not only just knowing facts about Jesus, but believing them to be true and then actually resting on those facts about Jesus, that he died for sins and rose from the grave. We're resting upon him, relying upon him to provide what we need most. Jesus can see their faith because it demonstrates itself through action. It demonstrates itself through action. Their actions aren't the foundation of their faith. They're actually the fruit of their faith. It's when that faith actually becomes visible. It actually goes public. For example, if weatherman Dan Scoff tells you that Snowmageddon is coming, how do you know that you believe weatherman Dan Scoff? You go to Walmart and you start packing up on all that toilet paper and water that you can find, right? That's exactly what you do if you truly believe Snowmageddon is coming. If your doctor diagnoses you with a reflux disease, if you believe him, you're going to go and get that script filled at wherever your script can be filled. Mark wants us to see that genuine faith can be seen. It will evidence itself through action. And that action does not ultimately save us. It's the fruit of salvation that we've received by faith. Because faith will produce good works, right? Good works are the fruit of faith, not the root of faith, as you've probably heard it put before. And these men serve as models for, I think, how we live by faith. They're not letting their circumstances keep them from pursuing Jesus. A paralyzed man, a massive crowd, and a thatched roof are no match for their faith. And it is visible to everyone. But friends, would others say the same about your faith? Would others say the same about your faith? We may not have to unroof a roof to show Jesus that we have faith. You may not have to do that. But you may need to fight a lack of desire to meet with Jesus in his word. You bet every single one of us are going to have to fight that. You may need to rearrange a busy schedule to provide time to show hospitality. You're probably going to have to do that. You may need to overcome your annoyance with a neighbor in order to share the gospel with them. All circumstances that could keep you from living by faith. Doing so are active expressions of faith in your life. Genuine faith will show up rain or shine. It will show up in season and out of season. When circumstances are ideal and when circumstances are extremely hard, your faith will show up. Is that the case for your faith? Is it the case for your faith? Jesus saw their faith, but does Jesus actually see yours? Does he see yours? 
what Jesus sees in these men leads him to say something. It leads him to say something. And it's not all what anyone expected, right? This is not what we would expect. It's not what the crowd was expecting. You bet it wasn't what the paralytic was expecting. It's not what anybody expected. What does Jesus say in verse 5 to the paralytic? Son, your sins are forgiven. Right? You can imagine the stunned look on the paralytic's face. Uh, Jesus, I came to be healed. Right? Grateful for the sins, uh, but what I wanted was to be able to walk again. Right? I'm paralyzed. Do you see that? Right? I'm, I'm on the mat. You know, that I had to come through the roof. I couldn't just kind of walk through the crowd to get to you. Now, we don't know why this man is paralyzed. Mark does not tell us, right, that, it's, that he's suffering directly, that his suffering is somehow directly related to some personal sin in his life. Mark doesn't tell us that. Right? We can't necessarily go there. So we don't know. But what do we know? We know that all suffering is a direct result to sin at the fall in Genesis 3. When sin entered the world, so did suffering. Everything from pandemics to this man's paralysis entered the world. By pronouncing the paralytic sins forgiven, Jesus is not just somehow like callous toward this guy, indifferent to his physical condition. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Jesus is showing concern for this man by showing a deeper concern with his deepest problem. This man has a deeper problem than his paralysis. His ultimate problem wasn't what happened to him, but actually what resides within him. It's not his feet, his legs that are his problem. His problem is his heart. It's his heart. It shows us that his greatest need wasn't healing, but instead to be counted holy before our holy God. If Jesus healed him without forgiving him, then he would still be eternally condemned before God. He may be healed temporarily, but he will still suffer eternally in hell. For Jesus to fix him rather than forgive him would be like putting a band-aid over someone who just had open-heart surgery. Saying, oh, well, that'll help right there. That'll get the job done. That would get Joseph Kuhn fired. Let's hope he doesn't do that. But Jesus' forgiveness is an act of compassion because he's providing the cure to his greatest paralysis, the paralysis of sin. Friends, our deepest problem is not our circumstances. It's not our suffering with all the suffering that all of you are going through right now. It's not our situation in life, which are frustrating for many of you. Sin is rebellion against God by living without reference to God, as it's been said. It's saying, I know what my problem is, I know what I need most, and I know how to get it. But the answer to our deepest problem isn't to rid ourselves of suffering, but to be reconciled to God through the forgiveness of sins. Friends, there are a lot of problems in our lives. Every single one of you, if you just took a second and you thought of all the problems in your life, you could probably come up with a lot. You've got financial problems, you've got health problems, you've got relational problems, psychological problems, you've got marital problems, you've got familial problems. And all of us are going to be tempted to live without reference to God by falsely believing that our greatest need to our problems 
is our felt needs being met. Like a bad doctor, we will fail to see what we need most because we misdiagnose the problem. We misdiagnose it. We'll say that we need this depression to lift. We need our loneliness to be met with companionship. We need our cancer to be in remission. We need a job that's going to provide well for our family. Now, all those things are legitimate needs. Those are clear needs that we're asking God to provide. Jesus certainly is not downplaying them. None of us should downplay them. Instead, we ought to reprioritize them. Jesus is showing us that we could get what we want without ever getting what we need most. Friend, if you're not a follower of Christ, recognize that you're going to be tempted to misdiagnose your way through life. You're going to be tempted, running after one felt need to the other. The world's going to cheer you on in it. That's so great. You're doing a great job. But Jesus is showing you that your deepest need is to be reconciled to God because you have sinned against God. And the good news for you and me is that Jesus died for sins on the cross, rose from death to life, so that anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith may receive forgiveness of their sins. You can have that forgiveness of sins today. Jesus has dealt with our deepest problem to show us that our deepest desire, our deepest need is ultimately for him. You need him to forgive you of your sins because your sin is against him. Friend, the greatest paralysis of your life, it's not physical, it's not psychological, it's not financial, it's not relational or familial. It is spiritual. That's the greatest paralysis. And so turn from your sin. Come to Jesus in faith and receive the forgiveness of your sins. In Jesus, our greatest problem meets our greatest desire. So come to him. Well, Jesus might be able to tell us what our greatest problem is, but the other question that we have to raise is, can he actually provide it for us? Can Jesus provide our greatest need? Point number two, Jesus provides, verses 6 to 12. When this story began, we thought the biggest problem was this man's paralysis. But that only undercovered or really kind of started up an even greater conflict, right? We thought the issue in the text was like, this guy's got to get healed. But then Jesus meets these scribes in verses 6 to 7 and realizes, wow, we are definitely up in the game a little bit here, right? There is a greater conflict that is going on. Things escalate. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, but some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, this isn't the first time that we've seen the scribes. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 22, right, we saw, we, we met the scribes there in the synagogue. We heard about them, right, that Jesus, the crowd there in the synagogue was so astounded by Jesus' teaching. Why? Because he wasn't teaching like the scribes, but instead was teaching them as one with great authority, Right now, you may remember from last week, the scribes were experts in the Old Testament law. They often carried that honorary title of rabbi. 
They derived much of their authority from rabbinic tradition. And so when they read the law, they read the prophets, they also recited the interpretation of that rabbinic tradition, of those elders within Israel. In our passage, Mark is showing us that that question of authority is still the main issue. And in one sense, the scribes are exactly right. They're exactly right. They knew their Old Testament. They knew what we just read in our scripture reading a moment ago, that God says in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, I am the one. I sweep away your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sins no more. They knew that God alone has the exclusive right, he's got the exclusive authority to forgive sins because all have sinned ultimately against God. If Cassie Luca, that's right, I'm naming names. If Cassie Luca were to go up to my wife and punch her in the mouth, all of us would be shocked. But if she were to go up to her and punch her in the mouth, right, and then Katrina Allen comes along and she says to Cassie, right, who just punched my wife in the mouth, she says to Cassie, hey, Cassie, no worries. I forgive you. Your sin is forgiven. No worries about that. Well, what's Kristen going to be thinking? She didn't sin against you, Katrina. What are you doing? That makes no sense. I'm the one with the bleeding lip here, not you. Why are you forgiving her? That would make no sense whatsoever. The reality and the point of that illustration is to show you that you can only forgive the one who sins against you, right? You can only forgive a sin when it's actually against you. So you get what Jesus is saying, don't you? When he declares the paralytic's sins forgiven. Do you get what he's saying right here? The scribes clearly get what he's saying. Jesus isn't claiming to be a miracle worker. He is not claiming to be a healer like anyone else. He is claiming to be God. The one whom all sins are against and who must who has the prerogative, the divine right to be able to forgive sin. He's claiming to have that authority that only God has. And such a claim is counted as blasphemy unless it's true. Unless it's true. These scribes could run theological circles all over the paralytic, and his friends. They knew their theology. They had all the right theological categories and answers, except the one standing right in front of them. There was a study done a while back, where in a popular study at that, where researchers had this group of people watch a video, and these people had a basketball, a couple basketballs, and they were going around passing these basketballs back and forth to one another in a circle. And so the people watching the video were to sit there and count how many passes were in that video. And then the researchers decided, you know what, why don't we dress somebody up in a gorilla suit, and then they're just going to walk straight through all the people that are passing the ball around. And so that happened. And then at the end of the study... Interestingly, they asked the crowd, hey, did you notice anything different at all? And kid you not, 50% of the people 
said no. Didn't notice a thing. Didn't notice anything. Didn't notice a giant gorilla walking straight through this scenario. Nope. Not a thing. Right? We see a similar thing, I think, with the scribes right here. They know all the theology. They're focused on it. They get it. But they miss the 100-pound gorilla right in front of them. They miss the one who is the culmination of their theology, the fulfillment of all of God's promises that they had spent so much time laboring over, blood, sweat, and tears over. They studied God, but missed him standing right in front of them. Friends, beware of the idolatry of theology, knowing all the right answers without actually leading you to worship God. Beware of a theology without Jesus at the center of it. Theology is not meant for armchair theologians in an ivory tower. It's meant for the everyday, rubber-meets-the-road aspects of life. So we don't study God's good sovereignty for the sake of only knowing about his control over all things. We study it because when we lose a job, you lose a spouse to death, or our physical ability is lost to be able to do the things that we once loved to be able to do, we study it so that we will remember that God's good control is sovereignly reigning even over those things in working them out for our good. Theology is highly practical. Theology is meant to draw us to Jesus as our greatest treasure, our greatest portion, and our great hope in this life of suffering. Theology that centers on Jesus will lead us to live by faith in the circumstances of life. That's what we saw with the paralytic and his friends. And sadly, it's not what we see with the scribes. They had their theology, but they missed the one who was the very center of it. It's been said, if the crucified Son of God is not at the very center of everything you believe about God, your theology has lost its balance, its anchor, and its meaning. So brothers and sisters, who's at the center of your theology? Who's at the center of your theology? Is it you or is it Christ? Do you study so that others worship you, right? Because of all that you know, all the theological things, you're smart. And so that you can get their applause. Is that why you learn theology? Or do you study the deep things of God so that when the storms of life hit, Christ is actually going to be the very ballast of your soul? Is that why you study theology? You ought to. If you do not, you ought to. And that's our hope, even coming up this year, as we begin to present various things to you all when we do men's and women's workshops on theology. We want to learn theology, not so that we can just go recite it to other people, but more importantly, so that Christ will be the ballast of our soul and we can help others do the exact same. Friends, let's not be fooled into thinking that God does not know the difference in our hearts 
for our knowledge of theology. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they, were, that they were thinking like this within themselves, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Jesus sees the condition of our hearts. In his divine nature, he knows our every motivation for the things that we do. He sees through every evil desire to impress others by what we know. He sees behind every religious performance in desire for praise. Every heart is laid bare before Jesus because he is none other than God in the flesh. And to prove this point, to prove this point to the scribes, he says in verses 9 to 11, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now, when we first read this question right here, it may seem like a trick question. Like, well, which is easier here? You know? I mean, after all, I mean, which is easier? Clearly, it's impossible for anyone to forgive sins but God alone. But the point of what Jesus is saying is that it's actually easier for someone to just say that someone's sins are forgiven because nobody can disprove that, right? Nobody can verify that. It's invisible. But if you tell a paralytic to get up and to walk and he doesn't, well, then everybody's going to know, well, this guy's a liar. He's a false prophet. He clearly can't do this. The logic here is that since Jesus healed the paralytic in verse 12, then he has the authority as the Son of Man to forgive sins. He has that authority. The miracle is the demonstration, the evidence, the proof of that authority. Now that title, Son of Man, right there is an important one. You might want to underline that one. It's the first time we see it in the text. It's also Jesus' favorite title for himself. And it comes from the book of Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel prophesies about the rise and fall of earthly kingdoms to contrast that with God's everlasting kingdom under the reign of his all-powerful king. And in verses 13 and 14 of Daniel's vision, there in Daniel 7, we see the Ancient of Days giving this one like a son of man authority, dominion, glory, and a kingdom so that those of every people, every nation, every language should serve him. Saying that his dominion is an everlasting dominion. This is an everlasting kingdom that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, I am the son of man from Daniel 7. I am the son of man. I am this king, the son of man who is both divine and human, whose authority is divine and whose kingdom is everlasting. I am the one who has come. And to prove that, right, that I have the divine authority to forgive sins and to do the exclusive right of God, I tell you, paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. That's the proof of this, that Jesus is the king who has come. Jesus doesn't simply claim the authority to forgive sins. He proves it by healing the paralytic. And he heals him physically to demonstrate his authority as God to heal him spiritually. 
Brothers and sisters, this is actually very good news for us. This is very good news for us because Jesus didn't come to just tell us that our sins are forgiven, but to prove it by achieving it through his own death and resurrection. This little story actually foreshadows the end of the gospel of Mark. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth to forgive sins because he died for them and he got up from the grave and he went home. He didn't do this in a corner, but instead like the paralytic in verse 12, what did he do? He rose up in front of everyone, eyewitnesses everywhere. Contrary to Jesus looking indifferent, contrary to Jesus seeming to be callous to this man's physical condition, he actually shows him compassion. He provides for his deepest need in order to guarantee his full restoration. You do realize that, that the forgiveness of sins actually guarantees his full future restoration. Not only will he not be eternally condemned by God, but guess what? In the new heavens and the new earth, you're going to be fully restored bodily, physically. New heavens, new earth, new and better Eden. A day when Jesus will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. The Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 3. Verse 21, brothers and sisters, not only is this true for the paralytic, but it's also true for anyone who turns and trust, trust in Jesus. Because Jesus paid for our sins on the cross, now we, through faith, get to hear those words right now, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Because Jesus defied death by his resurrection, we will one day, be able to get to hear him tell us on that glorious day of his return, rise, get up, come home, come home. No one nor anything in all creation has the authority to achieve this except Jesus. Only he has the authority to be able to forgive sins and as a result, guarantee our future restoration in resurrection on that day of salvation. So how do we respond to this? How should we respond? Verse 12. That's how Mark wants us to respond. Verse 12. Look there. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Friends, all of us were created for worship. All of us were created to be astounded by Jesus and to glorify God because of him. One of the greatest threats to our Christian walk is familiarity breeding apathy in our relationship with Jesus. One of the ways that this text teaches us to glorify God is just by simply being astounded at the forgiveness of sins that you have received through the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so, brothers and sisters, do you realize Right, you do realize that out of all of the things, out of all the things that you will see in your life, the one thing that is nothing like anything else that you have ever seen or ever will see is the forgiveness of sins for you. 
at no other point have you experienced anything like going from living under the condemnation to God to now actually basking in the favor of God. At no other point in your life has ever, anything ever been guaranteed to you that is better than victory over suffering because of the forgiveness of sins. At no other point has anyone ever purchased for you something better than the forgiveness of sins that Jesus purchased for you on his cross. At no other point in your life has anyone ever relieved you of a burden like the burden of sin Christ has relieved you of through the forgiveness of sins. At no other point has your future looked brighter than your future restoration that your forgiveness guarantees. At no other point have you had such reason to rejoice, right? No baby, no new home, no new job, no championship that you want in your life. At no other point have you had such reason to rejoice than the joy that comes from no longer being God's enemy, but now being called his child and his friend through the forgiveness that Jesus achieved. Brothers and sisters, have you forgotten the joy of forgiveness of sins? Let this be a reminder that you have a lot that you can rejoice in. Far more than anything else this life will ever offer you. Let's pray. Father, we give praise to you for such glorious good news in Jesus. We're grateful that in him there is forgiveness of sins, that he doesn't just say your sins be forgiven, but actually proves it. Not only just by healing the man, but instead by dying on the cross and getting up from the grave himself. Lord, we are grateful for the work of Christ, that in him we can have the forgiveness of sins. And we pray and we ask that for anybody in here who does not have that, that they would today. Lord, that they would come to turn and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Lord, help us to live lives rejoicing in the forgiveness of sins that have been accomplished through the work of Jesus. Lord, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.